0: Matthew 24, verses 36 through 44. These are God's words. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son of God, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days, before the flood they were eating and they were drinking, marrying, marrying and giving in marriage that if the master of the house had known in what part of the, time of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. May the Lord add a blessing to the readers, here and doers of his holy and errant and infallible word. You may be seated. For those, uh, those of you who haven't been with us uh, through the years, um, every year we typically at City Light pause, and we focus our hearts and our minds intentionally on the first and second coming of Christ. This is the heart of Advent, the first and the second coming of Christ. Not just the birth of Jesus, but the return of Jesus. The saints of God, we need this season because we live in a world of pain. Advent is yearly is a yearly reminder to us that while our eyes are forced to see so much hurt in the world, they were, our eyes were ultimately created to behold more than pain. Our eyes were created to behold glory. Yes, because man is sinful, the world is fallen, and the devil and his demons are busy, we are left with no choice but to behold suffering. We are left with no choice but to behold sickness and poverty and, and death and injustice and exploitation and division and pain. Even on college campuses, we've see we seen recently where the eyes of our young adults are supposed to be open to behold new knowledge and new insight, and yet they too are being forced to behold pain. Just this weekend, we've seen the loss of life with the murder of a student on Jackson State's campus just the other day, and last month we saw more pain with the fatal stabbings on the college campus of the University of Idaho. But Advent is a fresh reminder to us all that while we've seen and we will see much brokenness and much darkness and much pain in this life, we are not without hope because the light is indeed breaking through. Advent remind us that first, reminds us that first and foremost, we have seen the Lord at his first coming. John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen, beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But secondly, we are not without hope because we will see him at his second coming. First John chapter three, verse two, it says, behold or beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him, behold him as he is. This is the heart of Advent celebrating what we beheld in Christ, and holding on to the hope and the joy and the love that comes from that vision, while anticipating what we will see in Christ at his return. So to that end, I wanna take a moment this morning to encourage us to keep watching in anticipation of his second arrival. As we look at the text, we hear Jesus giving us a few things to consider as we watch for and anticipate his second coming. The first thing we know as we are watching is that based on Jesus's words, his arrival will be unknown. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, it says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. No one knows. We should keep watch. We should keep watching because we don't have the privilege of knowing the timeline of the sun's second advent or second coming. No one knows. The angels, the most majestic created beings known, aren't aware of the date. They don't know. The sun even declares that he is not aware of the date, which we'll deal with in just a moment because I know you're scratching your head like, well, wait a second. So here's a question. If Jesus tells us that nobody but God the Father knows, why should we expect to know? Here's an even more probing question for you. If Jesus tells us that nobody but God the Father knows, why are we even trying to know? One theologian puts it this way. He says, Christians who claim that they can narrow down the time of Christ's return to a generation or a year or even a few days, period, while still not knowing the literal day or hour, remain singularly ill-informed. And then he goes on and he says, recent pamphlets and popular paperbacks show the tenacity of such contrary views and the havoc that they can wreak we can no doubt expect he says this listen a new collection of false prophecies littering our christian bookstores as the intrigue intriguing year 2000 approaches end quote he wrote this in 92 so eight years ahead of 2000 he already saw y2k unfolding i love that this theologian who wrote this work in 92 knew the chaos that was coming, because it seems like every, every so often we have a monumental year that we want to say, "Christ is coming back now." despite the clear words of Jesus to us that no one knows, we still remain ease we still remain convinced that we can figure it out. And we still remain convinced that we should keep trying to figure it out. Even though Jesus is telling us, Hey, the angels don't know. I don't know. Only the father knows. So let me ask you a question. What does it mean for the son to not know? The son is God. The Son is fully God, but the son is also fully human. And thus, in the incarnation, in the first advent, the arrival of Christ, there are areas in which Christ has, according to Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, emptied himself. Scholar D.A. Carson points out, that John, points out that John's gospel, quote, one of the four gospels most clearly insisting on Jesus' deity, his godness, his, his divinity— also insists with equal vigor on Jesus' dependence on and obedience to his Father, a dependence reaching even to his knowledge of the divine, end quote. Meaning that Jesus has emptied himself and made himself dependent on God the Father, even to the point of the knowledge in which is being shared regarding his pending return. This is reflected in Luke chapter two, verse 52, when we hear these words. Jesus increased in wisdom and in knowledge and in favor, or sorry, in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. How does Jesus increase in wisdom? He emptied himself, became fully human while remaining fully God. So Christ, not holding this knowledge, is part of the Lord emptying himself. So the son did not have this knowledge. The angels did not have this knowledge. No human being has ever had this knowledge. And so neither will you. So how should we respond in light of the knowledge that we will not have this knowledge? Another theologian quotes and he says, if the son himself does not know the time of the second advent, his second coming, how cheerfully should we, his followers, rest in ignorance that cannot be removed? Trusting in all things to our Father's heavenly father's wisdom and his goodness, striving to obey his clearly revealed will and leaning on his goodness for support. In other words, instead of investing your energy in the unknowable, we should strive to invest our energy in the parts of his will that he has revealed to us, and we should strive to live in the joy and the hope that while we may not know when it is happening, we know that it will happen. We don't know when, but we can still live like it will happen because it will happen. His arrival will be unknown, it will remain unknown. So invest your energy not in searching for time and dates, but in living in the knowledge that his advent, his second advent, is indeed unavoidable. That's what you should do while you watch. Now here's another thing you should do while you watch. Realize that his arrival will be sudden. Verse 37, it says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, Marrying and giving in marriage. Why can't I say marrying this morning? Until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. What is the significance of a sudden and unexpected second advent? Well, according to Jesus, we have an answer when we look back to the days of Noah. Now, for those of you who may be unfamiliar or those that's watching that may be f- unfamiliar with this account about Noah that Jesus is referring to, it goes all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. And there was a time where the world had grown so cold, so wicked, so evil, that God declared he was going to basically reboot it. God said that he's going to send a flood and only one righteous, blameless man and his family are going to be re- protected in that flood. So he instructs that man to build an ark. A big ark, an ark so big that he can place all kinds of food and vegetation and all kinds of animals in the ark. And after he and his family are safely in this massive ark, the floodwaters are going to start and they will not stop until everything is destroyed. Now the point point Jesus wants us to pull from this, this account is that before the great flood of Genesis seven starts, everyone was just living regular lives, doing regular things, eating, drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, making all the normal plans that they would normally make living totally unconvinced and inconvenienced lives. Meanwhile, Noah's normal life is completely and totally uprooted. He's now dedicating his entire life to constructing an ark the size of a professional football field with the height of a five-story building. And I'm sure there are many who are looking at Noah, many of the rest of the world, and saying, what on earth are you doing? And why are you wasting so much time on this frivolous effort? This is ridiculous, this is crazy, to have your life so uprooted and so altered. Unless, whatever he's preparing for really does in fact happen and come. And it does. And when it does, There is no time to prepare. There is no time to plan. There is no time to build any more big boats. When the day comes, it comes, and it comes suddenly. So Jesus' point in bringing up this story is that his second advent, his second coming, will be very much like this. Everyone will be living regular lives. Everyone will be doing regular things, totally unconvinced and inconvenienced lives. Or totally unconvinced and and, and, and not bothered to be inconvenienced, rather. But what will he expect of his people while all of this is happening? Well, he will expect of his people that we will be eagerly watching for his return, living lives of preparation, living lives of obedience, Living lives like Noah, not getting caught up trying to figure out what is, what is not meant for us to know the exact uh, time and the exact day of his return, but instead living as if his coming is sure and his coming will be sudden. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, it says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and there is security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman suddenly, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that, day to, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of life, children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. And let us be sober. You see, brothers and sisters, you see, family, if you are living your life as if this is the only life, then and and, and there is no second advent, no second coming, then these words should be concerning for you. But if you are not in darkness, if you are in the light, then it is not a concern you should carry. Rather, it's eager anticipation that you should hold. Now, I remember as a young teenager, and this is, I'm about to really date myself at this point. I used to go and hang out at the mall on Saturdays. Remember that? Teenagers are like, what is a mall? I'm trying to figure it out right now as we speak. Pretty sure nobody does that anymore. Maybe they do, I don't think they do. But I love going to the mall on Saturdays and I love going to hang out at the arcade and love going to Corndog 7. Corn Dog 7 had this fresh lemonade, had these seasoned fries, which was really nothing but crinkle cut fries that they threw some Lowry seasoning salt on, but it would taste really, really good. And of course, they had really, really good corn dogs because, I mean, you can't call yourself Corn Dog 7 unless you have good corn dogs. And the arcade had all the hits Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, Cruising USA. My parents, however, worked on Saturdays. It was one of their busiest days, so there wasn't a whole lot of time to break loose from what they were doing to take us and drop us off at the mall. So sometimes they would take a break, and then they would jet over to the house, pick us up. Or sometimes one of their friends, or even one of their customers, you remember this, Mom? One of their customers would would pick us up and take us to the mall. And the times when they took us would be very unpredictable. They didn't come when we were ready, they came when they were ready right? I got a break now. Okay, let me get out of here. Let me go pick up, pick up the kids. Let me go drop them off at the mall, give them $10 because $10 could last like five hours at the mall back then. Give them $10 and then let them, you know, and then I'll get back to work. So they didn't come when we were ready. They came when they were ready. But when they were ready, it was important that we were ready because they were not going to wait for us. However, Given how bad I wanted to get to the arcade and play some NBA jam so I could hit three three shots and get on fire, it wasn't that much of an inconvenience for me. Do you think I was, when they got there, saying to myself, oh, man, I had to get ready two hours ago. No, I was ready and waiting and eager. I was staying ready. You see, it wasn't an inconvenience for me at all because I was waiting on something that I was dying to experience. See, how much would our anticipation of the second coming of Christ change if we remembered that we were waiting on something so beautiful, so joyful, so perfect that it was indescribable? How much would our preparation change if we remembered this truth about what we were waiting on? You see, because of the eternal experience that awaits us, we should be living a life for the Savior that reflects a joyful and a hopeful and an eager anticipation and preparation. Are you pursuing to live such a life? The second advent will be unknown. So our lives should not be consumed in knowing when he will arrive, but rather our lives should be consumed in just living in humble obedience, anticipating that arrival, the second advent, a second advent will be sudden, which means our lives should not be lived like the rest of the world who have no expectation for his arrival, but it should be lived like he will come for us any day. Here's another thing we should think about as we watch for the arrival of Christ. His arrival will be divisive. Verse 40 says, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, One will be left. The second advent will be a unifying event for God's people, for God's church. For all of the members across the world, both past, present, and future, will be brought together once and for all to experience the eternal reign of Christ Jesus. But these verses show us that there will be others out there, many others, who the second advent will not mean joy but rather judgment. Now, don't take too much from this text. Because some of the end time books and movies like Left Behind paint these literal pictures of planes and cars crashing because they don't have drivers and pilots. But it's never really articulated if that's the way it's going to play out. In fact, it's not actually even clear who's who in this parable. In other words, there are some who argue that the one left is actually the elect. And the one being taken points back to the sweeping away that we read in verse 39, where it says that the flood water swept them away. And so there's some that look at this text and they say, this, this, the people that's being taken are the people that are being swept away in judgment. Of course, there are others who argue the exact opposite. And there's good reasons to argue both sides. That maybe the person that's being taken is the elect. Maybe the person that's being taken is the one in judgment. However, It doesn't matter which person represented in the taking in the left behind. That's not nearly as important as the other points of the parable that Jesus is pointing to. Here's a couple of things. Number one, the picture painted tells us that when the Lord comes back, it will be sudden. With no time expected to get right. We've already talked about that when he describes the days of Noah. Judgment will come for one, joy for the other. No time to adjust, no time to say, oh wait, wait, wait a second, let me figure this thing out. Second, the picture painted tells us that when he comes back, people will again be doing what they normally do. That's another thing that we saw in his description of Noah. Some will be on the farm, some at the meal. For the most part, business as usual, right? And then before you know it, eternity jo- eternal joy, for one, eternal judgment for the other. Now, the grinding mill paints an interesting picture for us, and it actually helps us make sense of the final and most important point I think we should take from these two verses. In this picture that Jesus is painting of this grinding mill, these two women, it's typically customary that two women would normally go in pairs to grind the wheat into flour at the grinding mill. One would be on one side of the circle, one would be on the other side of the circle. And the grinder that grinds the wheat in the flour would be passed back and forth between them, meaning that they had close proximity to one another and probably had some dependency and some relationship with one another. This is oftentimes friends and sisters who would go to the grinding mill together. They were connected in some real way. They would share a lot with one another. They would share family ties, possibly, social ties, pretty uh, definitely, class ties, more than likely. Their daily rhythms would look very similar to each other. The business of their lives would have looked similar, and yet a dividing line is now being drawn between them. Not because of their class, they're the same. Not because of their ethnicity, probably the same. Not because of their social status, probably the same. Not because of their gender, absolutely the same. Not even because of their daily tasks and jobs, because they're the same. None of those are the dividing lines. So what separates these two women? One was ready for the Lord's coming and the other was not. One woman's life may not have appeared radically different from the other woman's life. Their daily jobs weren't probably that different from one another. Class-wise, their lives probably weren't that different from one another. Socially, they probably weren't that different from one another. They probably faced and shared the same struggles. The difference was who one woman bowed down to. The difference was who one woman declared Lord who one woman ultimately looked to for hope and for strength, who one woman placed her faith and trust in, who one woman sought to obey, who one woman prepared to meet. That would be the difference between eternal joy for one woman and eternal judgment for the other. The dividing line wasn't as much about what they did versus who they served. In the end, this is what will separate you from everyone in this life. In so many ways, our lives will look very similar to one another. We will work together. We will shop together. We will play together. But the dividing line in the end will be not where I was born or where I landed in the social order. The dividing line in the end will be, did I belong to the one who was coming back for his people? This leads us to these final verses, and this is very, a very important thought. As we watch for his arrival, we should remember that his arrival requires our readiness. Verse 42, it says, therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You know, it's Christmas time, And one of the all-time Christmas classics has become Macaulay Culkin debut, Home Alone. Of course, and if you have not seen Home Alone, where have you been? (laughs) But if you have seen Home Alone, then you know that Home Alone is about this little kid whose parents leave him by accident. Home Alone for the Christmas holidays. And while he is alone, robbers come to his house to invade and burglarize and terrorize. And so after there are a few back and forth light minor battles, the robbers get fed up and they leave and they retool and restock. And they say, we're gonna come back. We're gonna get this kid. We're gonna get what we came for. And so they make one final no holes barred attempt to get Kevin, that's his name, and rob the place. But as they're preparing, Kevin is preparing. He's booby-trapping the house everywhere. He's heating doorknobs. He's hanging swinging paint cans to hit them in the face as they come in. He's icing the stairs. He's setting blowtorches at the door so that when they open the door, the blowtorch goes off and their hair is lit on fire. He is ready for the thieves because he knows the thieves are coming. You know, in life, if we knew the thieves were coming, then we would probably prepare a lot like Kevin. We would set all of our home alone traps that Kevin set. And too many of us treat our spiritual lives that way. We tell ourselves that we're going to settle our business. Get everything in place and prepare when we know that He's coming. When we get the word that it's not too long before He's going to show up. When He comes for us in His second advent, that's when we'll get ready. When He comes for us in our death, that's when we'll get ready. But here Jesus says, "You don't get the privilege of knowing the timeline. When He comes, He comes." And I know some of you may be saying, or some of you watching may be saying even, why doesn't he make this easier? And just tell us when he's coming so we have time to prepare. Let me help you with one more illustration. And I think this might help you get it. You know, when my mother and father would go out to run errands when we were teenagers and preteens and and old enough to be, you know, uh, latchkey kids and be able to be left at the house, you know, they would go off to run their errands Sometimes they would call us and say, hey, you guys need anything? We're gonna you know, come back. My dad would call, hey, you need anything while I'm out, that type of deal. Other times he wouldn't announce his return. He'd just come back. Sometimes he would give us the word. Sometimes mom would give us the word that she's coming back. Sometimes they would just pop up. <gasps> Here's mom, hurry up. Stop doing whatever we were doing. <laughs> mom is here, dad is here. And I imagine part of the motivation for them doing that is because they did not want us to simply be ready for when we were in front of them. They wanted us to live a life that was always ready for their return because our posture in their absence speaks more to the honor that we have for them than our posture when we find out that they're coming. Are you you tracking with that? And so Jesus is saying, don't wait till my return to get right. And don't, and don't try to figure out my return to try to see if you can catch wind of when the thief is coming. Stay ready in honor of me. Stay ready because you love me, not merely because you fear my presence. Stay ready because you trust that my words are indeed true and that my ways are good for you so that when I tell you what to do in my absence, you believe that it's good for you to do what I ask you to do. Stay ready because you believe that what's on the other side of this obedience is reward for you. As they say on the streets, stay ready and you'll never have to get ready. In fact, Jesus takes us into the waters of the contemporary controversy of the day because not only is he telling us to stay ready, but he's telling us to stay woke. (laughs) I mean, before the word woke was a word in black culture to highlight spiritual and intellectual enlightenment, and certainly way before the term became what it is now, which is I don't even know what it is, just like a pejorative for anything tied to left-leaning anything. Before all of that, Jesus was encouraging us to stay woke. Now, not stay woke like any of those, you know, connotations from, from, from our culture. When Jesus was saying stay woke, as you see in Matthew verse 20, uh, chapter 24, he's constantly talking about being awake. First Thessalonians chapter 5, he's constantly talking about being awake. And so when Jesus was saying stay woke, he was saying when the world is laughing at your preparation to meet your Savior, you stay woke by remembering that according to the Apostle James, we must not be deceived because God will not be mocked. That whatever a man soweth, of that shall he also reap. When Jesus talks about staying woke, he's, not, he's talking about when the world is living recklessly as if there is no God. Remember that according to the Gospel of John, Our God has gone to prepare a place for us, and he will come again and will take us to himself, that where he is, we may be also. When Jesus is saying stay woke, he's saying that when the world is in despair and when the world is hopeless as if there is no God, remember that according to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, we do not grieve as others who do not have any hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And those final words right there bring me to my final words of encouragement to you in watching for the Lord's coming. Those final words, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. My final words of encouragement to you in watching for the Lord's coming is that you can watch with confidence because his second arrival is confirmed by his first. Like his second arrival, his first arrival was unexpected. We only had the promise, but we didn't know the time in which the promise would be fulfilled. Through Moses, we were assured that he was coming. Through David, we were assured that he was coming. Through Isaiah, we were assured that he was coming. Through the 12, the minor prophets, we were assured that he was coming. And yet, we waited. We waited centuries, centuries before he came, before he arrived, before the first advent. And like his second arrival, his first arrival was sudden, with no plans of his arrival in sight. God's divine messengers begin to appear; the angels begin to appear first to the family. They appeared to Mary. They said, "Hey, you're with child. As a virgin, you're going to give birth to the savior of the world." They appeared to Joseph and said, "Joseph, it's okay." Mary's with child, but it's okay. They appeared to the shepherds in the heavens, in the lights, as they arrayed the heavens, and they declared that unto, the, uh, unto you this day a child is born. And then they appeared to others, and others, and others, and so forth and so on. And while the rest of the world was eating, and drinking, and buying, and selling, and planting, and marrying, God was coming down to earth, wrapped in human flesh. And like his second arrival, his first arrival was miraculous. Came from a virgin womb. Lived a perfect life. Did miraculous works, turning water into wine. Feeding 5,000 off of two fish and five loaves and did all of these miraculous things. And the second arrival will be miraculous as well as he cracks the sky. And like his second arrival, his first arrival accomplished this purpose. He came to rescue and save the lost. He came to give life to dead men and dead women. He came to pay the ransom for many. He came to die on the cross for our sins. He came to be raised from a borrowed tomb. And he accomplished his purpose, and in so doing, he saved many, and he established his church. And so as he did then in his first advent, we can take confidence as we look towards the second that he's going to do what he has set out to do, which is restore everything to restore all of the brokenness, to restore all of the pain, to restore all of the heartache, to restore all of the hurt, to restore all of the suffering, to relieve us of every burden, to wipe every tear. And if he accomplished exactly what he set out to do the first time he came, we can take confidence and watch with eager anticipation that he will accomplish exactly what he sets out to do when he returns again. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.